kicking off a new series for Sunday morning that we will be spending really uh, probably till the beginning of summer uh, called Selfless. And we're going to be taking this series from 1 Corinthians. Uh, but before we deep dive into 1 Corinthians over the next couple of weeks, uh, I want to pull back and really give a 30,000 foot view of the book because uh, having an awareness of this book, I think, is very helpful in talking about how we can move from being selfish to selfless. If I were to ask you about 1 Corinthians and say, what is the book about? My guess is you might have two potential answers. Answer one would probably be a church with a lot of problems. <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of problems. All that you read about are issues and difficulties. And maybe the second answer you might give is Paul answering a lot of their questions. Because you have over and over again so many sections beginning with now concerning the matters that you wrote and now concerning as each section moves on. And I think it is important to maybe take a step back and see that uh, those are more symptomatic of ultimately what the book is is truly about. It's easy to miss the purpose statements uh, that are found in, in, in the New Testament letters. But when we miss those purpose statements, uh, it can cause us to not have, I think, a good light and a good understanding of what the author is intending. For example, if you think about First uh, John and its complications and, and things like that, and sometimes you go, well, that's a book about Gnosticism and things like that. But uh, Paul's, per- I mean, John's purpose statement at the end of that letter is to say that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, that changes your lens on how you read First John when you see John saying, the reason I wrote this is so that you will know that you have eternal life. And I think we can do the same thing here with First uh, Corinthians because it's a book that seems like, well, they're a mess. They've got a lot of problems and he's answering questions and it all just seems really disjointed and out of place. That What we can do is see that there is a central picture that is given to us. Uh, most of the New Testament letters follow this framework that you'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. You always have the author named first. The recipients in verse 2 are named second. A salutation in verse 3 is given. Grace to you. A section of thanksgiving always follows that, which is found in verses 4 through 9, which is why when you study Galatians and there isn't that thanksgiving section, it would have been tremendously jarring for anyone to have seen that because you always did. Author, recipients, salutation, thanksgiving. Always, 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 always. That's why all of your books of the Bible do that, is that they have that order. And once you clear that, you usually get what the thesis, topical sentence, purpose is is all about that's given. So notice verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is the big purpose that Paul has for the Corinthians and why he's writing this letter. 
He tells them, I want you to all agree. I want you to be united. I want you to have the same thinking and the same purpose and that there would be no divisions among you. Which after reading that, you go, well, okay, what exactly was going on? What's the problem there? I love verse 11. Verse 11 perhaps is one of my favorite New Testament windows into a church. And please imagine that in the first century and later centuries, you would have had somebody open the letter and read it to the congregation. And as they're listening to this, you would have the next line be, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's house that there's quarreling among you. (laughs) I just always visualize all the eyes of the church all look at Chloe Thanks a lot, Chloe. <laughs> you told Paul what? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been told to me. That Chloe's telling me you guys are fighting. Chloe tells me you all have problems. You guys are quarreling with, with each other. There's divisions among you. That's how Paul has become aware of this. And that's why his ultimate goal here is to move them to same purpose, same mind. And what we're going to notice in this overview of the book of 1 Corinthians is that ultimately the issue and all of their problems, all of their difficulties, everything that you see as to the church being full of questions and full of divisions is that they are behaving selfishly. In fact, if you'll jump down in chapter 1 and notice in verse 28, this great thematic summary of ultimately what Paul is going to teach in this letter. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And his big purpose statement is, You aren't supposed to be boasting in yourselves or in other people. You might remember, as you have from verse 12 to verse 17 in chapter 1, talking about, I follow Paul and I follow Paul. You're you're, you're following after humans. You are making much out of people. And Paul says God's whole goal was so that no one would do that. No one would ever say, hey, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Or I'm following that guy. That person's really important. He says, I've done this so that no human being may boast. And that the only boasting, the only glory, and the only honor would ultimately always follow on our Lord. And so that really lays out the whole of the book. Is that they are full of selfishness. They are full of of pride. That is the issue. And what we're going to do is just trace that through this book this morning and just get that overview idea of the repetition by which Paul either speaks of their selfishness 
or of their arrogance because these are the things that ultimately cause the problems and the divisions. And then Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll get to come back to these sections and go into them with a little bit more depth. You'll notice in chapter three, for example, listen to what the apostle Paul says there in chapter three in verse one. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving in only a human way. Notice what the Apostle Paul tells them is, here's the problem. You haven't experienced any life transformation. You're still of the flesh. You're still doing what you want. You're still obeying your passions and your desires. You're acting in a human way. I love that. You're just being mere humans, which is, I think, so fun to think about because... So often we say, well, I'm only human. And Paul goes, and stop that. (laughs) Stop living like mere humans and live spiritually. Live as one who belongs to Christ. Don't just follow the desires of the flesh. Follow God. Be transformed. He says, I still have to address you as unspiritual people in a fleshly way. You're taking milk still rather than having the transformation that is supposed to exist because you are a follower of Christ. And now think about where the rest of the book goes. So we're going to spend our time just considering is all of the problems that now flow because of their arrogance and their selfishness, because they are not spiritual, but are merely acting as humans and in a, in a fleshly way, they are living their lives. Chapter five, and you look at chapter five, what's the big problem there? Glorifying sexual immorality. Remember, it even specifically says in chapter five and verse two, and you are arrogant, you are proud. Here is the sin that is going on in the church. And rather than mourning over the sexual immorality and doing something about it, you're arrogant about it. You're praising it. You're glorifying it. You're saying what a wonderful thing this ultimately is. And so rather than elevating Jesus, they're elevating themselves. Look at what the sins they're committing. Oh, that's great. That's fine. Sin that even the Gentiles wouldn't even agree with. They are praising and are, and are proud of. You see the same thing happen in chapter 6. As chapter 6 opens, what are the Christians doing? Suing each other. They're taking each other to court. And, and Paul has to challenge them that you can't even be wronged or defrauded in the situation. You, you have to be right and sue each other. There's nobody with some godly wisdom among you to be able to deal with the difficulty and be able to solve this. And he draws into that picture of transformation in verses 9 through 11 when he says, 
you know, we were supposed to be getting away from that kind of life of selfishness and doing what you want and obeying your passions that you have been transformed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ Jesus. There's supposed to be a life change, but then notice the very next sentence in verse 12, even though our Bibles like putting headers and make it sound like it's a whole new paragraph. The very next line is you're going around saying, hey, everything's lawful. I can do what I want to do can do what I want to do. Uh, I'll make my decisions. I'll make my choices. I'll live how I want to live. And he's trying to get them to understand you are living in a fleshly way. You're being selfish. Verse 20 of chapter six, you were bought with a price. You don't belong to you. You're supposed to be different. Look at what Christ has accomplished for you. And yet you are still arrogant and you are selfish and you are thinking about self and doing what you want to do rather than being transformed by the will of God. And so the whole of chapter six observes the selfishness and the arrogance that exists among these Christians. Consider chapter seven. What's the problems of chapter seven? Marriage problems. Um, Don't raise your hand, but think about how many marriage problems come from selfishness and arrogance. Yeah, a lot, (laughs) a lot, if not all. Somebody's thinking about self. In fact, in chapter seven, he's trying to break them of that thinking as well. You'll notice like in verse four, when he says, you don't have authority over your own body, but your spouse does stop thinking about yourself. You're giving yourself to the other person. This marriage is not about you and you are being selfish and arrogant in that way. He goes on and talks about divorce. That's not supposed to happen. Marriage is supposed to be for life. And yet so often what happens with affairs and sexual morality, adultery and divorce, people are thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the other person. They're thinking about themselves. And ultimately, as Paul writes this letter, he is correcting those things so that they will live properly before God. But selfishness and arrogance destroys marriages. In chapter 8 through chapter 10, think about this whole section here where what you ultimately have are these Christians who are taking these liberties and they have their rights and they're saying, I have a right and I know. And so therefore it doesn't matter what I do. One of my other favorite lines of this book, verse two, chapter eight, verse two. After he says in verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. (laughs) You think you're so smart, you know nothing. If you think you've got it figured out, you don't have it at all. I love how Paul drills them with that. Because ultimately what what they are doing here is they lay this out as to say, well, we know what idols really are. And therefore we can do what we want with idols. And he says, you're not understanding you're hurting other people. You're still thinking about yourself. Just because you have rights and just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you have a disregard for other people. And so he says, your knowledge has made you arrogant. It's made you puffed up. And if you think you know, you don't know at all. That's always my favorite thing as we get older. What do we figure out as we get older and older that we know less and less? We knew so much when we were young. And as I get older and older, I realize how much I really don't know. 
And that is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's what the Christian walk is about, is understanding. Well, you think you've got it all figured out. Just give it a little bit of time and you'll see you don't have it all figured out. And so he's warning them here about how they use their rights and how they use their privileges and their knowledge in a way that is ultimately about themselves rather than it being God honoring and God glorified. Chapter 11 carries that on as as well in chapter 11. We often define this section as head coverings. I'm not sure any Bible does not have the header head covering sitting right there. But ultimately, it is about the behavior of godly men and women and everybody practicing their proper position as they have it before God. And so that paragraph is trying to remind them it's not about them. Is that you have a proper place, you have a proper position before God as godly men, as godly women. The back half of chapter 11, what's happening with the Lord's Supper? Nobody's waiting for anybody. It's just a free-for-all. We just, Hey, you know, I'm going to have, have my time. I'm here. I don't care about anybody else. You know, we're not going to wait for anybody. We're just going to be able to turn this into a common meal and have a free-for-all. Again, the selfishness that exudes after chapter after chapter, problem after problem that underlies what's going on. Chapters 12 through 14, whole section about these miraculous spiritual gifts. What are they doing? Well, my gift's more important than yours. <laughs> I can speak in tongues and your prophecy's not as powerful as mine and not as good as mine. I've got something you don't have. And so Paul has to go through and talk about the importance of understanding that we're members of one another and the importance of all of the gifts. And he goes through all that. But think about the selfishness that exists when you're saying what I do is more valuable than what you do. And the gift that I have is more valuable than the gift that you have. Which as you think about Chapters 12 through 14, this whole thing about spiritual gifts, what sits right in the middle? The whole chapter that we jump in on chapter 13, love. We usually kind of parachute into chapter 13 and miss the surrounding context that in 12 and in 14, it's all about how they're misusing spiritual gifts because of their selfishness. And in the middle of chapter, that section of chapter 13, He gives this whole discourse on love. In fact, in that context, listen to the words that he says. For example, in chapter 13 and verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Do you hear the thread of the book as he writes, here's what love looks like. It's not selfish. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't say it's my way or the highway. It doesn't say this is the way it has to be. And so here, as he writes about this problem of their selfishness, even in their gifts, he drops this important section on love to express to them, do you understand what the transformation is supposed to look like? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And so that they would see that and understand that that is the picture that God ultimately has given to them, is that they are lacking love. And that is why there are so many problems. 
And I want you to notice then how this really works into what then the Apostle Paul wants us to see what it is all about. If it's not about us, then what is it about? Notice chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are saved. It's not about you and your way and your so important. He just spent all of this book because the whole problem is they have divisions and fighting because of their selfish thinking. He says, so let me remind you of ultimately what all of this is about. It's about the gospel. What does he spend his time talking about? The power of Christ and the resurrection. That's the focus. That's where the attention lies. And ultimately, that's a reminder to us to overcome our selfishness that we don't live for here. We're living for eternity. We're looking forward to resurrection. We're looking forward to the time to come. It's not about right here and right now. So how can I make it about me? How can I have it? Hey, pay attention to me. Look how important I am. You know, it's about the gospel. And it's about where we're going. And it's about the hope that is found in the gospel. And ultimately, as Paul does in all of his letters, so he is emphasizing here, it is truly all about Jesus. And that even as in chapter 16, you might think chapter 16 is just, okay, you know, get the collection and, and, and hi everybody and goodbye. But notice carefully how this even threads to the end of his letter. Chapter 16 and verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. You can just see this trail that he's been moving through the book. That he comes to the end and says, now here is how I want you to think. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop acting for yourself. But rather let all that you do be done in love. He does it again in the next two lines. Verse 15. Now I urge you brothers that you know the household of Stephanus, who were the first converts in Achaia. How they have devoted themselves to the servants of the saints. Listen to 16. Be subject to such as these. And to every fellow worker and laborer. What do you just tell them to do? Submit. It's not about you. Everything you do, do in love and submit yourself to the other workers, to the other Christians. Submit yourself to one another. And then notice he even ends that way. Verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This book is a beautiful book about how to move people from selfish thinking to being selfless. And that's going to be our goal over the next few weeks as we dig into the book. But for this morning, I just want to have one very simple application that we'll spend our time in. One simple message. It's a very important message. That the Apostle Paul is communicating. And the message is simply this. There will always be divisions, strife, fighting, jealousy, and problems 
if it's all about us. Always. The book begins. I want you to agree to be of the same purpose, to be of the same mind. I don't want there to be quarreling and jealousy and fighting. And yet I hear that that's happening. And the whole of the book is to put to death the selfishness and the arrogance that is going on in the way that they behave with one another and how they are thinking about God, which tells us something so important that there will always be divisions and fighting and jealousy and problems and strife. All of these difficulties, if we make it about us, everything in life, every relationship we have will get messed up. If we make it about ourselves, marriages get messed up when we make it about us. Families get messed up when we make it about us. Churches get messed up if we make it about us. Now, again, no show of hands, but as a side reflection, I would just like for you to think if you have been somewhere or have heard of somewhere where there was fighting and problems and divisions, I would like for you to consider Was somebody or some group of people making it about themselves? Probably. Probably. Because selfishness is the root of division. It is the root of jealousy. It is the root of fighting. It is the root of problems. And for us, we need to understand the destructiveness of, of selfish thinking and selfish living. The beginning of the lesson, I said, if you were to think about a summary of the book of 1 Corinthians, how would you sum it up? And I saw a lot of people like nod who say, the church is a messed up church. Definitely. And I just want you to consider, how did they get like that? How could they possibly have all of these problems That they're fighting with each other, quarreling with each other, elevating other humans. They're messed up when it comes to sexual immorality. They're suing each other and taking each other to court. We've got marital problems that are going on. We've got people saying, I have a right to do whatever I want to do. We have people not acting in love. We have people saying, my gift is more important than yours. How do you get so messed up? They're even messing up the Lord's Supper. The very thing where we're supposed to stop and remember our Lord's death and resurrection. And they're messing that up even. How do you get there? The destructiveness of selfish thinking. To really grasp the kind of wreckage and damage that is caused from selfish thinking And from pride. And we have to remind ourselves that it's not about us. It's not about getting what we want. It's not about getting what we think is best. The world does not revolve around us. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the church. We're not it. It's Jesus. And it is interesting that as we observed in what Paul wrote... That kind of thinking is a natural human way of thinking. Is that what he said in chapter three? You're still thinking fleshly. 
It warns us that it is an easy thing to default into. Selfish thinking is easy. It is so easy for us to do. It's natural. It's habit. And if that were not enough, our culture tells you that is the greatest good. You think about you. You're number one. You need to make it about you and you do what you want and you live your way and you do what's best. And I want us to see that not only is God saying you will mess everything up in life if that's what you do. But I hope you'll see that it is an easy path to fall into because it's natural. And when things are natural, then they seem right to us. Selfish thinking is natural. You don't have to work hard at selfish thinking. That's just, you know, that's easy. That just happens naturally. But what happens naturally can then seem right. And we need to see the destructive nature. And I'm going to say something a touch bold. But I submit to you that selfishness and pride are really the basis for all the problems we have in life. Every relationship conflict, every problem, every fight, every difficulty stems from this. And why is our culture the way that it is? Selfishness and pride. Why are things so difficult? Because of selfishness and pride. So much of our problems come from that. Divisions come from selfishness. People are thinking selfishly and arrogantly. They're not thinking about others. Marriage problems, not thinking about others. Problems in the church, not thinking about others. And Paul is condemning that and saying, stop behaving as mere humans. Stop behaving as mere humans. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be transformed. You're supposed to be spiritual. And those problems will all go to the side. If you would think about God and put Christ at the center rather than ourselves. Final thing. In thinking about this introduction that the Apostle Paul has in 1 Corinthians, where he says in verse 10, I'm appealing to you for you to agree. No divisions, but there's quarreling and fighting and jealousy that's been reported among you. And I want that to end. And the whole of the book then trying to end that kind of selfish thinking. I want you to note that when Paul wrote to the Philippians, this paragraph that he gives is perhaps the ultimate summary of of 1 Corinthians in an ironic way, and yet truly is the summary of for what it's supposed to be for the walk of life as the Christian. Listen to the similarities. Philippians 2 verse 1, If there's any encouragement in Christ, there's comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, and have the same love and have be a full accord in one mind. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1? I want you to have no divisions and I want you to be of the same mind and the same purpose. He writes to the Philippians and says the same thing. I want you to have the same mind and the same purpose and be joined together. And notice what the next line is. 
Don't be selfish and arrogant. Which is what the whole of 1 Corinthians is about. All of those problems and all of those divisions and all of those issues is because they're being selfish and arrogant. And it makes sense that the Apostle Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be of the same mind. I don't want you to have divisions. Therefore, no selfish ambition, no conceit, no arrogance, but have the mind of Christ. Look to Christ. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's about what he did. Consider others more significant than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. It is ultimately the picture of what God is calling for us to do, that you and I would never do anything out of selfishness or pride. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how we can make sure that we don't do that. As the Apostle Paul teaches deeply about moving away from selfishness to living a way that has no selfishness and no pride. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is easy. It is so easy to live our lives thinking about ourselves. Having only concern for ourselves and putting ourselves first. Lord, we pray for forgiveness. Lord, forgive us for how many times we behave selfishly or arrogantly toward our friends and in our families, among the people of God, in the workplace, with our neighbors and with strangers. God, that you'd forgive us for all of the times that we know and we don't know and we are unaware of the times when we've just been so selfish in our way of behaving. Lord, we pray that you would not only forgive us, but that you would strengthen our minds, transform our hearts in such a way so that we would be selfless. Lord, we pray for the strength, the courage, the knowledge, and the ability to do nothing from selfish ambition or arrogance, but to do all things out of humility, to put others ahead of ourselves, and to love others as we ought to. God, help us with that. Help us to be the lights in our community in a time right now when our culture needs to see a self-giving, self-sacrificing people who love you. Help us to be those people. Help us to show the world that there is a better way than thinking about self and that the way to get away from the divisions and the fighting and the hatred is to put their focus on you, that it's all about you and it's not about us. So God, encourage our faith. Help us to be lights. Give us the strength that we need to serve you in the days ahead as selfless servants and not selfish, arrogant people. We pray this through your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are going to sing an invitation song, and as we sing it, I want you to think about
how Christ perfectly exemplified that. The amazing selflessness of Christ is so stunning. Who gives himself for us, who did nothing from pride, arrogance, from selfish preservation, but gave himself for us. And he gave himself so that he could forgive us for all of our failures and shortcomings and weaknesses. So we encourage you to think about your situation this morning. If you're ready to come to Jesus, turn away from your sins, to follow him faithfully, be transformed by the power of his son. We want you to be able to do that this very way, very day. If you come and do that now while we stand, while we sing.